here on Jay's Corner, of course I couldn't do it alone. I've had the support of many. At the top of the list is Bob Powell. He's a financial journalist, an icon. He's widely quoted in pretty much every location. He knows tons of people. He'll mention them here on today's interview. We welcome him back after a year and a half. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Jay's Corner. My name is Jay O. I am the certified financial planner. I'm also the author of Maximizer Medicare, the published book. Jay's Corner is there to try to explain how certain financial matters work, to try to help you separate the signal from the noise, so that when something changes, you're not distracted wrongly, and instead, keep your eyes on the ball, which is tough to do given the way that we are given information. There's a free and paid newsletter. Go to jo.substack.com. There are two YouTube channels, Jay's Corner, as well as Maximize Your Medicare. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you digest your podcast. Be sure to leave your comments. Let's begin. So we welcome back Bob Powell to Jay's Corner. Welcome, Bob. Thank you for joining me again here today. Uh, Jay, it's always um, a pleasure to be in your corner. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've reversed roles. You're Usually I'm the one answering your questions and things like that. And now I'm going to put your feet to the fire. So I look forward to this. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> Last time we talked, we talked about the crazy run for Boston sports. Turn time, the worm has turned, Bob. <laughs> the yeah, the, <laughs> it's turned in Philadelphia's direction or New York's direction, or I'm not sure. It's it's not the, the only team that we have going for us right now, Jay, is the Bruins. They're doing really well. Um, the Celtics are off to a mediocre start. Obviously, the Patriots are having their woes, though. Um, last week was a pretty good week for us. And and of course, um the Red Sox, who knows? I don't know what's going to happen there. Well, the the Bruins and the Celtics have had headlines for the wrong reasons over the the past couple of days. Yeah, the Bruins kind of shot themselves in the foot. That's what I heard, right? Some somebody wasn't correctly vetted from a childhood or something. Yes, uh, a a somewhat young hockey player who was originally drafted, I think, by Arizona, had some problems when he was fourteen years old, and had tormented a um, black disabled child and it's haunted him ever since. Um, That is so there are certain lines here. We have forgiveness in our society that there are certain ones that are going to be real tough to overcome. Yeah. And I think this is a case where the kid was 14. He's now, I think in his early twenties or so, and maybe there's a thought on the part of the Bruins um, front office that maybe he had uh, redeemed and, and repented, but uh but the NHL, Gary Bettman weighed in and said uh, he will not be playing uh, anytime soon in the NHL. So the Bruins had wow. to uh, reverse course and and uh, terminate the contract that they had offered him. Wow. So. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fiasco. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I, had, I, I let me share this with you, Jay. Speaking of the Boston Bruins, I had played golf on Sunday and then we stopped at a local uh, restaurant to grab a bite to eat. And uh and who walks in and sits down exactly right next to us is Ray Bork, who really, uh, yep, he had right who had played for the Boston Bruins. Oh yeah, for almost his entire career before he left to go to the uh, Colorado Avalanche and promptly won the only Stanley Cup that he ever uh, had ever won. And uh, so anyway, we were sitting next to him, and my son 
uh, went up to him and asked if he could have a photo, which he graciously agreed to do. And my son told him that the very first time that he ever stayed up past midnight was because I let him watch the Colorado Avalanche uh, win the Stanley Cup. It was he was all of six right. years old and he had to stay up till midnight plus in order to watch, you know, Ray Bork um, with tears in his eyes, uh, skate around with the trophy in his hands. So um, it was quite a thing to meet a Stanley Cup champ and uh, and hometown legend. Was this like a small local restaurant or is it? Yeah, like it's just like... a small little local restaurant next to the uh, uh, golf course where we played. And uh, and. Uh, you know, and he walked and all our jaws dropped. Uh, everyone in the restaurant jaws dropped because he just oh, walked did everyone in. Know, know who it was? Everyone knew who he was. Yeah. I okay. mean, he's he's impossible, uh, you know, given he's impossible to not know that it was him. Right. He's he's a big, beefy guy with a recognizable face and uh, OK, big smile. And uh, we were all like, oh, my God, that's Ray Bork. <laughs> so. That's that. That's pretty cool. You know, I, I don't. I don't. Rem I'm sure if he walked in today, I wouldn't know who it was. So I mean, I wouldn't have known. I I didn't follow. Well, of course, you know, being from Michigan, the Red Wings at that time, you know, very big. Just just prior to when the Avalanche started to get good and things like that. So yeah, you know, though those days were all, oh, those days were all changed. And your daughter went to Wisconsin, right? She did. Yeah. So by the way, since you're in Michigan, I have to tell you my other uh, brush with fame story. I was uh, at an airport uh, going through the TSA line right. and uh, and who strolls in behind me, but Juwan Howard. And uh, <laughs> very unmistakable, <laughs> very unmistakable. You could anyone could recognize that it was him. And I'm, I looked at someone next to me and I'm like, Juwan? <laughs> like, yeah. Not, not many six foot 10, six foot 11 people on the planet, right? No, and, and I didn't <laughs> want to tell him that my daughter went to Wisconsin given what happened to him the last time uh, right. they played each other. <laughs> Boy, I that was very, you know, college sports have really taken it in the chin. I mean, and some of the off the field stuff, my my goodness, there's this Michigan State fiasco. You, you saw oh, that. It's yeah. just like, I don't know. I mean, rivalry is one thing, but I'm, I, I, I don't get to opine, right? Because then I look too much like a homer, right? But I mean, <laughs> right. But that was holding someone down the, and right. swinging a, a helmet. Yeah, to watch the video of that is to think that something went wrong there with the it's coaching just staff. Unbelievable. Yeah. Un unbelievable. Yeah. So. And it, and it's you know it's interesting because we right we hold our athletes up on this pedestal and yeah. and and not. And perhaps not deservingly so, right? We expect right. different than average human being, but in many ways they're not. They're just particularly good at whatever, hitting a golf ball or throwing a football. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the fact that, you know, we're not going to athletes for, you know, intellectual ideas or, you know, philosophy philosophy ideas, but you know, to cross the line for clear assault is just like crazy. I mean, yeah. I I I've struggle to find what the explanation is well thankfully you know it seems like the coach and you know has expressed look we're going to lay it down the line suspending the players immediately and you know as far as they could see and then let the rest take its course i mean both i can tell you in you know in ann arbor both schools have had very nasty uh, headlines from, you know, academic, like, you know, the president from the University of Michigan, you know, ejected, right. uh, obviously Michigan State and 
you know, University of Michigan having coaches with wrongdoing in the past of, you know, terrible nature has just been not a very good set of, uh, you know, a period actually probably since we last spoke of fairly <laughs> long litany of, you know, not very pleasant things uh, going on. So, so I thought that, you know, away from sports talk, <laughs> you should be happy you're not talking to my son who's a football fantasy uh fantasy football addict and uh would talk for hours about uh who to who to draft and who to pick and who to draw oh, okay right, right, right. is he on like season long or daily is that which, which oh no i mean he he has his own homemade podcast on sunday mornings and uh and aside from that uh i actually had golf with him on sunday and spent uh however many hours listening to uh, who I should draft and who I should drop and who, et cetera. And, and I have to admit, I don't even do fantasy football because it, I, I realized it would take up far too much time to actually be good at it, I think. Oh, it's crazy. You know, so I, uh, on Jay's Corner, part of the whole message, right, has been, look, there are these techniques when someone's man- putting a portfolio, you modern portfolio theory, and reality is, is that I've been telling persons, look, this actually looks a lot more familiar to what people are doing when they are putting their fantasy football teams together. Right. A lot. Yeah. Right. Because you're trying to get the highest average score with, and then you're trying to have these combinations that work. And it's so extreme that, uh, you know, in daily fantasy, I'm, I'm not sure if you're, you know, all the different contests, there are these different contests where you know, you only get paid if you win, like the Uh very, it's very, very top heavy. So the, you're tweaking modern portfolio theory so that the quarterback is throwing to that wide receiver. So in other words, you know, in, in, when you're managing your portfolio or you're thinking about portfolio, you're thinking about lowering your correlation across asset classes, Mm -hmm. right. In order to, and yet trying to get the maximum return, but in daily fantasy, while you're trying to have the maximum return, you're trying to turn up the knob on correlations mm-hmm. so that when you have a particularly high scoring game or you've got a quarterback throwing to a particular receiver, you're teaming them up intentionally right. where you can't do that for season long because if that, if that goes wrong, they lose your sunk, you know, that kind of thing. It's so... You know, and it's funny that the people that I, you know, I've got a couple of friends who are scientists first. Right. And I'm like, and we talk about sports and I said, you know, all you have to do is just think about what you already know and just turn the dial slightly and you get to these different topics. Yeah. And, you know, diversified portfolio on one hand to fantasy sports is actually not as unrelated as you might think and have you seen these websites about daily fantasy bob or fantasy sports no they're running correlations on the site they're running projections to get the maximum you know expected return yeah and then tweaking based on you know these correlations it's crazy yeah you know i i so you reminded me years ago i had a neighbor he and i tried to do a um startup out of his garage he was a statistician and had done work for um, rick patino okay. uh, when patino wow. coached at boston university and then later when he came back to the celtics they hooked up again and it was really an early version of 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 moneyball in a sense yeah for bas- for, va- for basketball it was the sure, thought of sure. 
which combination of players should be on the court and for how long and in which game situations, down by 10, up by 10, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really interesting because Patino relied on this system uh, when he was here with the Celtics and also and going back to his time when he was coaching the Boston University Terriers. And uh, and then at, along the way, uh, my neighbor got mistreated by the other the assistant coaches um, for the Celtics. And so he decided to strike out on his own. And I, I was helping him launch his business. And and uh, it, it was interesting because there were, were other players already in that world, like Stats Inc., uh, who were doing something similar, but not exactly the same. But they had already an installed customer base. So it was really hard to crack uh, the so-called lineup in the NBA, at least. We ended up getting a few college basketball teams. But along the way, I got to meet um, Jerry West and Mitch Kupchak and, <laughs> cool. uh, and I got to meet them in LA, uh, you know, at the Staples. And, um, I sat down to talk to Jerry West and Mitch Kupchak about this system. We called it right. metrics and, uh, Jerry West, uh, uh I w- I'll leave out the swear words, but he was like, we don't need no stinking statistics. <laughs> we, we manage, we coach and manage our teams, you know, with gut instinct. We don't need numbers to tell us what to do. <laughs> so. well, now, now look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was like, I mean, that was like 20 plus years ago when we were trying to get this up and running. So yeah, now look at just, you know, now we have microchips and people's sneakers, right? Well, now also the other thing is that um, who was that the Mavericks. So Mark Cuban had actually hired uh, somebody called Paralabob of Bulgaris. I want to say who whose background actually is as multimillionaire from basketball betting. Ah. And what he was doing is he was keeping very careful statistics. There's all sorts of podcasts about Kim and his story because he was hired by Mark Cuban to be kind of like in very high management. I can't remember if he's like, you know, director of player personnel. I mean, very high up. Right. So, yeah, uh, you know, all of that had come full circle to some degree. And then, you know, they had some personality conflicts at in Dallas. But that whole technology had actually reached, uh, you know, the upper management. And now, you know, Mark Cuban deploying it, you know, or believing it and trying to do that. And it not coincidentally tells you that the other link, which is that uh, and you know, hopefully you have better things to do, but on, on Jay's corner, there are hours of streams of me playing in small stakes poker tournaments ah. because not, and actually this person from the Mavericks, he's actually on these very high stakes poker TV shows on YouTube. Interesting. Where, played. you know, people are buying for like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars they're bringing to the table. But because poker now is completely a game theory, optimal, uh, na- you know, these guys are talking about Nash equilibrium. They're running simulations overnight to find what the proper approach and the proper betting and et cetera, et cetera. There's an entire industry which now, you know, has taken a bunch of math and you know with this it's not the idea of like you said we don't need no stinking statistics <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's so incredible that there is this there have been scandals about cheating yeah that people would have real-time assistance 
running the simulation while you're playing poker online to figure out what the mathematic combination and what is optimal, you know, the optimal action or reaction to be. It's yeah. been, you know, this explosion. It's pervasive, right? It just happened in the world of chess, right? Where exactly uh, right <laughs> where we had a, a world champion be accused of cheating and his opponent no, resigned right. after one move right one move he resigned accused him of cheating I, yeah i think that you know they had amassed the number of data the amount of data because these are so related right because of the fact that you're a chess too and, and i barely know I, I mean i know the rules but you know i would not call myself a chess player by any means but you know there's all these openings and patterns and everyone has this the first set fully memorized, like completely memorized, right. right? Up to a particular point in time. And then, and only then, you know, are there then variation, you know, there are variations on these themes that are all, you know, they're running simulations about what is exact. And so I had seen some other videos on examining the person accused mm. and other of the best players in the world had watched it with the simulator and say okay this is not possible right that a human could do that on the fly yeah. you see what i'm saying in other words yeah. that so you know when they ran it with the simulation they ran a couple of the accused game games and saying that you know he's run it with nine he's played this game with 98 percent perfection mm -hmm. com compared to with a computer yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it's not just a random one-off poker hand. No. No. <laughs> no. no. Random one-off poker hands because someone's had too much to drink and, you know, has, you know, yeah. and get, lets their ego get in the way or something like that. But yeah. the idea that you would have simulations on chess and then also randomness at to 98% accuracy with the simulator. Nah, you know, that's so the conclusion had to be at that point is like, you know, th that's got to be wrongdoing. Right. Like there's like, no, but it's just been crazy. Yeah. So speaking about back breakdowns of these correlations, uh, I thought we would talk about uh, your world and all the different uh, inputs, your different comments on the street.com retirement daily, all the things that you've yeah. got going on. So I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll share with you, I think, um, I didn't think I would cause such a ruckus when this, uh, when this appeared, but I, I wrote, uh, there was some research done mm. uh, based on the life cycle uh, savings, uh, life cycle uh, theory of finance and uh, life cycle hypotheses that goes under various names. And uh, the theory is that uh, what people want, and, 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 you know, Medigliani won a Nobel Prize for this. Let me just say that at the outset, right? Right. And, uh, <laughs> and he won a surprise that ultimately said that what people want throughout their life is smooth consumption, and that when they're young and their income is low, uh, that they ought not save for retirement, uh, hmm. that they uh, dis-save, that uh, perhaps they take out loans to buy a house or invest in their human capital or whatever the case may be. And then as they reach middle age and their income rises above their consumption level, that then they now have the income to uh, save and save even aggressively for retirement. And then, then by the time they reach retirement, they've built up a nice little nest egg and their consumption will stay the same as it did during the, their working years. Well, so the, the headline to the story was, you know, and to their research report um, was that young people should not save for retirement. Um, and uh, you might as well have thought I said, uh, you know, 
uh, everyone should jump off a cliff, uh, you know, with cement boots on, you know, because the comments were everyone, everyone to a person said, are you nuts? I would never tell a young person not to save for retirement. Like, in what world does that even make sense? And I'm like, well, in the world of life cycle finance, it makes sense. And if, if you subscribe to this uh, hypothesis, uh, then it makes then it makes perfect sense that you know you don't want to have lumpy spending over the course of your lifetime. You want to mm. maintain a certain standard of living. Um, now the the challenge I think of course is you know there's the theory and then there's the reality, right? right. So in theory, my income might rise when I get to be middle aged, but in reality, maybe it doesn't, right? Maybe it stays the same, and in which case then I wasted a lot of time having a higher standard of living than I should have. Right. In the hopes that I would be able to save later. And so maybe the better thing to do. And and when I, I asked the author this, I said, you know, this is it's kind of interesting. What if what if things go wrong? Right. Like, right. What if, right. And he said, well, I'm not telling you not to save. I'm not I'm just telling you not to save for retirement. I'm telling you, you could save for an emergency. Right. For something like that happening. You know, maybe you're injured and you can't go back to work or maybe you're buying disability insurance to prevent the, you know, the, the, the right. risk of being disabled. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, you don't need to save for retirement until your income supports that savings level. If, if what you want is smooth consumption. So I'll you know, pause there because I want to hear your reaction, Jay. Well, I, I read the article. I read both articles. I so I read your article and I read the original report. So <clears throat> I thought that what was interesting about your article at the end was this seemingly innocent sentence, which is. The, a lot of that is certainly empowered when interest rates are zero, mm -hmm. right? But now the opportunity cost has changed, right? Notably, right? Two-year note now 4.6% yeah. for, for U.S. Treasuries, whereas even just two a year ago, you're talking about what, a quarter, a half a percent yeah, at, at 0 most, 0.2, yeah. Or something like that. So now all of a sudden, you know, this is kind of where I wanted to go on all the different like craziness, which is now the assumptions we've used for lots of things, lots of things is now rightfully challenged, I think. And I want to see kind of, I'm going to want to see what your other counterparts, I'm one of your counterparts where I'm giving you, you know, particular sound bites about a, a particular topic. Yep. You've got a lot, you've got a whole stable of J's, you know, who are giving you different types of opinions on, and, you know, guidance uh, for your audience that, you know, I think that a lot of this is going to be challenged really from the ground up because really since the great financial crisis or literally most of our the living people's lives have had a one-way train rally in the bond market. Yeah. One way. I mean, it's been basically unabated other than the great financial crisis, just because everyone thought the world was going to end briefly. And then, you know, before TARP and then the bouts of no of, you know, a bull run in the bond market has really been uninterrupted outside mm -hmm. of these. And they were fairly confined. Right. I mean, it'd be and there was an action which immediately fixed it. You know what I mean? In other words, you know, the Fed threw a, threw a safety net to the banking system, mm. right? And then basically said, "Okay, well, no matter what, you know, we're gonna we're gonna backstop the ban banking system." Period. 
And, you know, even if they tried to let Lehman go, that didn't work. Right? Said, we're not going to let that happen again for AIG. Right. I mean, they said, okay, that that's, we're not going there. I mean, no. Basically. So like, no matter what, we're not going there. Yeah. Um, but now I'm not sure what the fix is here for, to get interest rates back down to have, to return back to that mindset that has been ingrained for decades. Do you have any idea? Uh, you know, I, I no, except for right, increase the Fed increasing interest rates until they, you know, until the economy comes to a grinding halt, right? Although Powell did say, no relation, that uh, right, we're watching this closely and we'll be looking for signs of it of the of the economy cooling off. Um, I think it's I think it's almost an impossible task, right, to. Uh, ratchet up interest rates and sort of strike that balance between like raising it to the point where it slows down enough so that interest rates come back down. I, I don't know how you do that, but I wish him luck in that regard. Um, I do think though, what's interesting is, you know, for the past, whatever, 20 years or so, it seems like everything I ever wrote or everything I ever read always began with the phrase zero interest rate policy, right? Yeah. Like how do you invest in a zero interest rate policy environment? And and that was sort of like a mainstay of every webinar, of every research report, of every conversation I ever had. And now that's changing, right? How do I invest in a rising interest rate environment? And what I think is interesting, and I'm not sure it gets talked about enough, but certainly I've, I've seen enough people say, oh, this is a great time now to invest in bonds because yields are at four or 5% in the corporate world, whatever it might be. And now at long last, I can get um, you know a coupon that is worth right investing in. To which I, I might say, well, you know, real interest rates during the zero interest rate period, like let's say if risk-free rate was at whatever, 0.25, and inflation is running at, what was it running at, 1%, 2% or so? Right. right. You were looking at a real rate of, of negative 1.5, maybe. And now we're looking at, um, you know, inflation running at 8% and a risk-free rate at, at 4 And so we're looking at a real uh, rate of, what, negative 4 So it's it, you're still losing money in a way, aren't you? If you're investing in a long bond with a four percent return, um, you know you're. It's not like, you know, you've got to you got to use real money to pay for real goods, right? So you're not keeping pace conundrum. with inflation necessarily, huh? Yeah, it's a conundrum. I, I mean, I like you said, I, I'm not sure how they thread this uh, needle. Uh, I, I like you like you pointed out. I it's pretty unlikely. I, I actually have. I've already looked beyond that, meaning that. <clears throat> excuse me my my issue is let's say for example the cost of in the cost of index is 100 and now it's at 108 that in a year we're gonna they're gonna these high prints are gonna start rolling off mm -hmm. and you're gonna have lower prints inflation is lower inflation is lower yeah but it's still starting at the base of 108. Mm -hmm. So if it goes up by 4%, right? It's 108 times 4%, which is still nowhere close back down to 100. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And then there's yeah. the, the cost. Right. And, and I think you can't unwind the wage growth either, right? You're going to tell someone, oh, yeah. it's slowing. So I'm going to you know cut your wage to a place, right? That's not going to happen. So I'm, I'm afraid we're in a rock hard place in a way. I've got one more, which is that, um, which kind of has to do with the controversy we're having with the with China, which is mm -hmm. that 
and I've I've made this point to a couple of friends of mine. I'm saying, you know, the export from China is actually deflation. And if they're not, if they stop exporting deflation, right? Because they've had a fifth, they've had a fifth world economy go to the first world, you know, in a blink of an eye. Yeah. And the way they've been able to do that is because their wages have been so low and therefore they've been able to make everything for a much cheaper price. But now all of a sudden, if you cannot do that, that even if the Fed does make monetary financial conditions tighter, I'm not sure that that's the whole story either, mm. which I'm not sure. I, I don't think is out there in the press to be candid with you. Yeah. In fact, it's the first time I've said it out loud on a recording that, <laughs> and I got this because I was in Asia at a lunch with a person from an economic think tank in, in this Asian country, a prominent one. <clears throat> and he was, we were having this rhetorical conversation, Socratic conversation. He's PhD at a think tank. You know, there's just me, you know, yeah. well, I spend time looking at screens and, you know, thinking about, you know, fixed income derivatives. He said to me, okay, what do you think that China has done the most? And, you know, kind of like as a quiz to me, and I'm just thinking to myself, well, they've increased velocity because of all the extra people who have, you know, moved from the farm to the city. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, that is true. But he was the person, he said, they've exported deflation. Mm -hmm. That while all the nominal GDP has grown globally, that price index of the globe hasn't really increased. And why? 1.7 billion people pushing down inflation. Yeah. And what happened and and now this was a long time ago that we had this conversation that I remember uh that this person, this scholar from this think tank was like that at some point is going to be an issue because you need to remember that China does not consider itself like the United States where we are considering you know the long run is this coming Friday or you know, third, third. <laughs> next quarter's <laughs> annual right earnings report, whatever. The, yeah. the, the next, the next CPI print or, you know, something like that. But yeah. to China, you know, the long run is, you know, decades, yeah. decades and decades. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I candidly don't know. And I want to get back to your paper and your observations. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, right. I, <laughs> it's so easy for the two of us, Bob, you know, we, to because we, we've got your sound clips. Yeah. We're trying to meet, you know, certain parameters. And now all of a sudden we don't have these, these barriers. Uh, I'm like, so oh, many no. off ramps here, Jay. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, quite okay. So, one of the things that I was thinking about along these about your life cycle article, which I didn't necessarily disagree with, right? Because of the fact that I've been trying to say to persons, whoops, sorry about that, um, is the fact that we get, we're assigning different utility to the money. Mm -hmm. And that is part of this life cycle um on the academic part of the paper, I'm not sure if you mentioned it in your article, but on the background uh, report of the study was the fact that people are getting different use of the money when they're at a younger age. So 
25, 29-year-old Bob Powell used them that money and got a certain satisfaction quotient, whatever that quotient is. Yeah. And there's certainly things that you know we could do when we're in our 20s, early 30s that you cannot do at 64. Yep. For example. And how do you really, you know, equate that? So that kind of back into your life cycle, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, you want to be consuming, right. you know, kind of like for smooth consumption, because at those points in time of your life, you're getting enjoyment factors that you will not necessarily be able to replace later, A, much less that you have to be in condition to enjoy it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, which I think was the back end of that paper, right? The, of the paper itself, which is that why is, you know, actual spending declining to some degree, yep. you know, in at very late stages of life. Yeah. And so, yeah, and you that, know, I thought that was, that was, like, that was an interesting uh, thing, right? That, you know, one of the premises too, at least by the folks at the Rand Corporation, Michael Hurd is the person I spoke to, was this notion that you know maybe we are oversaying so so the, the the thought is okay so you get to retirement and spending declines on a real basis you know where and most farmers are projecting that it's going to rise on an inflation adjusted basis so uh what happens uh if if and and other studies have done this as well Blanchett has done it uh, uh Boston College JP Morgan several other groups have said hey look spending declines on a real basis in retirement so uh, one possibility is that, you know, we're oversaving. The other is, like you mentioned, uh, utility changes, right? Uh, early in retirement, uh, maybe you went to Europe on a, you know, month-long vacation. But late in retirement, well, I've already done Europe. I don't need to do it again. So I'm not going to derive any utility from doing that again. And uh, maybe I'll derive utility and spending it in other ways or not spending it at all, right? Um, because I don't I don't know what satisfaction I'd, I'd get from uh, if it's not a trip to Europe or a trip to Central America or taking my grandkids to Disney World or whatever it might be, you know, everyone's utility is going to be uh, obviously different, uh, but it does, you know, it, it spending declines. So we need to also accommodate for the possibility that maybe if not, we haven't oversaved, we, we may be either um, reducing our ability to spend in retirement or creating a large bequest that we didn't intend on. No, I exactly, that, this is what I'm saying is that I've, I've said this to other to financial planning clients that they've entered retirement. And if we've kind of agreed, they have the sources required that they've thought through, they've turned over the rocks for the number of scenarios that they could reasonably predict. Uh, even if that was that they could not take care of themselves, that I'm like, look, if you're gonna, please don't tell me that, about your plans to go on a vacation. <laughs> Just send me a postcard from when you're there yeah. because you don't know, especially early in retirement, that you're not exactly sure that you're going to be in the physical. You may be a medical situation, you know, restrains you from taking that trip. Yeah. So, you know, your utility difference, you know, really can matter a great deal. Not even talking about how many, the fact that if you're confined to your home, for example, you don't, you can't go out to eat and things like that or whatever to the same degree. Yeah. So the, the, and I thought that the life cycle article was interesting because it points this out that it can also extend to other age ranges, right? And, and especially because, and I tell people from Jay's Corner that, you know, what a disaster I'm having in writing a second book. And part of it is, 
because and and you actually pointed out and that's kind of you know we're going to end this segment which is that the way that people earn money now as a 30 year old is so different than work at general electric mm. have career advancement get increased salary also a pension for example yeah. right now all of a sudden that entirety that entire process is now basically gone. I mean, something like what, 20% on defined ben, defined benefit. And those are largely civil service, you know, government type, mm -hmm. you know, jobs, whether it be yeah. VA or, you know, state or local government. And so now we've got this different course. So I'm wondering if that article changes because of the fact that I'm not sure about your son, but mm -hmm. if I'm 20, as I've said this to other people, if I'm 18 years old, am I going to college even? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Or if I'm just, or if I'm figuring out how the social media algorithms work right. for, for two years and then for going on, you see what I'm saying? Like the no. entire life stages now are all kind of mucked up Yeah, because of the fact that the, what the Demelios, the Demelio sisters, twenty million dollars each for two of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we don't need five. They don't need five good years, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the, and you can't think their window of opportunity is going to last every single year for now for the next fifth twenty years. Yeah. So you know rationally, and, and the barrier to entry is so much lower. Right. Right. I mean. Ray Bork was a gifted athlete for a long time, right? I mean, he, a lot of filtering had already occurred. You, right. you see, I mean, there's, I'm not going to be a professional athlete. I knew this, oh, when I was like, you know, five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I could have been a TikTok star at five. You see what I'm saying? In other words, or that could have been on my horizon. Right, right. And and I would never have, you know, I, and I wouldn't necessarily advise my kids to go try to become TikTok stars because, you know, I, I think sort of like winning Powerball a little bit. Like, I don't know, you know, who's going to be holding a, a steady cam while they're riding their skateboard, you know, to right. Rihanna, right, or whatever, some, right, Fleetwood But Max. it's a lot more, right? I mean, it's a lot higher probability now. It's not nearly like the YouTube algorithm thing is like, crazy yeah right these these person are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for not that many views right not that i mean it's a lot i'm not talking about mr beast you know that kind of thing but yeah. i'm talking about even just run-of-the-mill channels there are now solid income streams that young persons can make where the idea of a corporate job for that same person may not be the rational path. Yeah. And as a result, now the entire life cycle, that paper, et cetera, I'll be fascinated because unfortunately we're not going to have a new life cycle paper until after looking back at, you know, the different. Well, that'll be an interesting choices. one to look at. I, I think, right. Because, um, everything has been upended even the point that you made about college right i think about conversations i've had with joe coughlin over at the mit age lab who talks about this notion of lifelong learning and people getting certificates or you know sort of right. mini 
degrees that at least speak to some specialized skill or knowledge or experience that they that they need to advance in their career or or to understand the algorithm of YouTube. Yeah, I and the thing is that that could be rationally the EV, the expected value of that that investment in time may be superior to college for for certain persons. That that's what I'm saying at the, at this point, right? I mean, because now you've got college at this price, assuming that you know not all loans are forgiven, right, <laughs> and things like that. But you know, we won't settle the politics of that. But when you can't do that. I don't know. Well, it can be since the barrier to entry is a lot lower mm -hmm. and the, the possible path to income for young, for a new generation can, can change it, I think. And I'd love to see what the academics have to say about this, right? Because the academic math, the academics have been saying for decades that college is still the best path for future income and life and longevity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, on average that college degree is worth the investment, but now social media, I'm not sure if that has flipped around or not. I, I just don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you what, Rich, I, I posed this question to Richard Thaler, right? Yet another okay. Nobel Prize winner, author of Nudge, University of Chicago, right? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I had said, I talked to him about the life cycle paper that I had just written about. And I'm like, what's your take on it? And ultimately said, uh, you know, young people should invest in their human capital. He didn't say college per se, right? Yeah. He said, invest in your human capital because that's where your biggest return will be. And so that could be any number of things. It doesn't have to be college. And so I think that that's a great way of putting it, right? Because now it used to be that college was the only spot or, and, but now skilled trades, you know, be more viable depending on the person. And now we've got this whole other thing where now you can reach a globe. So it's, it has yeah. to do with the life cycle and the, and the fact of interest rates, because, um, you know, to bring, bring us full circle, you know, as I thought about, I even think that while it's true on average, certainly that even things like social security delaying social security, mm -hmm. now all of a sudden the return for delayed credits, right, is eight the eight units. Yep. But now if I told you that it's four now if I told you that you know the yield on the high yield index is six, seven percent, and it's not and you can compound that. And then when you couple that with the util the life cycle utility question, mm -hmm. you see what I'm saying? In other yeah. words, the entire mat decision making process with a different interest rate regime mm. looks different to me. Or might. It doesn't change the math of eight, you know, because of the eight units a year. Right. But it presumed a bunch of things, right? It presumed, well, I'm going to live to then, to X years. Yeah. And it makes no mention of you, the utility. Yeah. So I think, Jay, you raise a really interesting question, right? I, when I think about the financial planning profession, and I'll, I'll quote Zvi Bodhi, former uh, Boston University professor, now emeritus, who would look at all the research that was done by financial planners, non-academic financial planners, and he would yeah. refer to it as junk science. And and uh, and and in part because it was largely anecdotal, right? It wasn't it wasn't sort of true 
um, academic research. And I think what you're pointing to is this notion of applying uh, academic rigor to the exercise of trying to determine what's the best course of action, right? Delaying social security or not, right? Uh, taking social security and investing that benefit amount in a uh, high yield bond fund or whatever it might be, right? And 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 what's the utility of the, right? I mean, no one's, I don't think anyone's going to that, any, the financial planning profession by and large isn't going to that level of analysis to come up with the answer. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, every person's different, right? I mean, because then you've got a different person with different risk tolerance or different priorities, et cetera, to layer on top. So what we've got is a bunch of, and not to say that delayed retirement credits is wrong, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, mean, it's mathematically correct, obviously. Uh, And it's not changing anything about, you know, optimizing if you're a married couple and things like that. That part I get. All I'm just saying is that now that there are these other factors the utility factor always existed, yep. right? And then, but now it's now as a result of higher interest rates, now all of a sudden, because of the fact it can yield something, <clears throat> that that can change it. Whether or not it's big enough to change it at this level, I don't know. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> or maybe it doesn't change your mind at all. I think it changes the discussion, but I would, I would, I would, you know, hasten to add that it needs to be discussed in terms of real interest rates, not just nominal, right? Sure. No, 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 no doubt about that. I mean, that, that one, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know how we get to real. Well, you know, the, the Fed has said we want to have so that the real rate is positive. You know, if if that if that's going to be the case, that that's my issue. If that's what you want, and China stops stops deflating, and now we we still have these bottleneck, you know, some bottleneck, or maybe they're getting better, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get to a real rate that's positive? I don't know what what would that be right at the moment, eleven percent, give or take. Yeah, I mean that means you're gonna. I'm not sure how you're gonna stop raising. Yeah. Um. Until you got to that point. So. Yeah. Well, I the interesting think- thing, I'll, I'll share this one last thing. I'm reading the Lords of Finance, which is you know documents the 1920s and what the central bankers around the world did at the time to uh, either cause the depression or then try to get out of it. And uh, it's a fascinating history because you know what were the tools available to them? The same tools that we have today, right? Raising and lowering, you know. Fed funds rates and, uh, you know, with the same results. (laughs) You're right. Right. Hopefully there's not a depression on the horizon though, Jay. No, no. Well, I think, yeah, I I don't even want to go entertain what would happen. Uh, um, I do think that there's probably going to be some turmoil because what you saw in the UK, it was pretty dramatic. Although, and then, I'm not sure that whole episode is over. I'm not sure what what happens in your life, Bob, you know, to to Bob Powell. So you get these big headlines. I mean, you've got your normal work at <clears throat> on the street.com and retirement daily. And, you know, we'll have a link in the video and things like that for you, for people to, you know, explore. But now you have a big market change, et cetera, or event. Do you get calls or pitches for articles or what, what ends oh, up? Oh, countless. Yeah. I mean, every 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 time there's an event, um, you know, the inbox <laughs> is filled with uh emails from uh 
typically the PR person representing some institution, advisor, research entity saying, we have someone that can comment on the Fed, you know, doing this, or we have someone that can comment on, you know, China's supply chain or whatever it might be. There's a countless, you know, countless desire on the part of professionals to get their voice out and, you know, and through mediums like myself and my my peers in the you know world of financial journalism. So uh, I'm never at a loss for sources. What, what you may always be at a loss for, though, is sort of genuine, objective, earnest, right, um, sources. And that's always been, you know, the, the hard part, not the hard part, but it's certainly, you know, one of the challenges, especially with unsolicited emails. Like I've never spoken to, you know, John Smith about whatever, and, you know, how do, how am I to trust him and then quote him for the benefit of my readers who want to be enlightened? That's tough. <laughs> well, so I, it's I, tough. I can't also... imagine how many, how many yeah. emails you get with these pitches. Yeah, a lot. But the good news is like once you find someone, so you and I have developed this great relationship, right? And I, I can't recall off the top of my head how it came to be. Maybe it's because I noticed that you'd written the book and I reached out. And then over time, we right got to know each other. I get to understand your point of view, get to trust the knowledge that you have, have you know, like zero fear about right sharing your knowledge and wisdom with our readers and viewers. Mm. And, and uh, and so once once you find a good source, they they become you know a go to right. It, it takes a lot of the uh, hassle out of trying to figure out who to turn to when you want to write something. In all your inbox emails for pitches, I I was wondering, does anyone think that and that that event in London or in the UK coinciding with you know the Queen passing away? Um, and the turmoil in their internal politics. Was it your sense from the pitches that you got that that was just an example and there's got to be more out there or was there, there no real mention of it and just like, oh, everyone kind of just shrugged their shoulders? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 so there's a gentleman I follow. His name is Jonathan Payne. He's out of Australia. He's a Brit uh, originally. And uh, he was worried at the time and he continues to be worried, but he's also unsettled by the fact that um, others aren't paying attention to the possible uh, long ripple effects from that. And, you know, trying yeah. to examine whether other, uh, you know, pension funds, insurance companies had the same sort of exposure. I mean, it didn't, you know, obviously, you know, Bear Stearns and, uh, and AIG and what we witnessed in, in 08, what we witnessed with long-term capital, right? I mean, uh, you know, we, we we haven't seen that sort of like, right, sort of snowball avalanche effect yet, but maybe it will, maybe it'll still happen yet. Maybe it'll happen a little bit more slowly. So I think, I think we need to be watchful of, of that. I, I was shocked when, you know, I didn't, I knew that there was a problem or when everyone else did, I was shocked to see long dated inflation guilt minus 18% in a day. Yeah. I'm like, that can't be great. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and like the person you'll send, you'll share the link of the person in Australia. I probably yep. share that. I mean, it, it's very unlikely that this was one one party right because the broker dealer community has ported out this same technology to other parties mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be limited to the uk only either uh, i don't think it so it, not, can't, it I, cannot be you know not in a world where everyone is searching for yield right and and you know much like happened in 08 right we 
with uh, right all the collateralized debt obligations, right? Uh, you know, everyone was like, oh, grasping onto this technique that allowed us to, you know, juice the yield a little bit, right? You would think. So I, I, I'm very curious to see what what ends up happening here because of the fact that you know, with that in currency that you have these other parties who have been trying to get this extra yield to meet their pension obligations, right? Which have, there's this yield gap, which just normally would, or naturally occurs when rates are that low for that long. Yeah, <clears throat> You've got this disconnect between your liabilities, which you've promised to pensioners versus well, how are you going to get this return or this cash flow? Yeah. The only way to do it is by levering yourself to some degree, yet not wanting to say, well, I'm like five times levered the equity market. <laughs> right. So you had to be levered in some other market. Yeah. I, I don't know how they slept that night, Jay. <laughs> well, what? you know, when when you're short vol and there's no volatility, you, you wake up and you're, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's yeah. fine when it's not volatile but when stuff go you know when stuff become volatile on interest rates and then ripple effect of foreign exchange now all bets are off yeah you know i i don't know you know we don't we're too far removed from the african com- countries or latin american countries where what venezuela is at what a hundred percent hundred percent inflation you know, when things run out of control and not that that's going to happen in the United States, but a trading partner of the United States that could happen too. Yeah. Very easily. And, I think what, what you're suggesting to, to a degree also is that people should take a, a, a class in behavioral finance if they haven't already, so that they, they're not prone to um, recency bias or confirmation bias. And, <laughs> right? and uh, that might help a little bit think that tomorrow will be the same as today, which we know it may not be. Right. So on other topics, Bob, we've talked about healthcare a lot. How many, um, how much of your day in, you know, you got lots of topics on your, on your retirement daily. And the last time we talked, we were talked about, you know, the fact that ESG was a big, was a, was a big uh, topic that you had received a lot of interest in. What are your big topics for Bob now? Well, I think it's so. I'm sorry. Say it again. Inflation. Inflation, or or yeah, you know. certainly inflate. I mean, a, a, a different topics for different markets. So I, I think in the advisor market, there's been a great deal of discussion around how to incorporate private equity into uh, mm-hmm. you know a, a client's portfolio, and and you know we're even seeing at the Department of Labor, you know, discussions about adding private equity right into um, into um, asset allocation funds as part of a 401k and you know investment menu. And again, right, it's this search for return. It's the search for maybe an uncorrelated asset. Um, there's been a, a good deal written about how maybe uh, private equity has, you know, provided uh, better returns. 
there was a story recently about how had CalPERS, right, the big California pension plan, had they invested in private equity, what their returns would have been, had they allocated even a slightly larger portion of the PE. Uh, and so I think it's a really interesting topic. I don't know, you know, the degree to which PE will become democratized, but I think it's an it's a ever-present and ever-growing part of our investment landscape that that needs to be, you know, written about, talked about, discussed. Uh, because I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think it's I think it's here to say is especially in a world uh, Jay where we're looking at you know the public markets um, shrinking right and and so you know people are looking for returns perhaps outside the public markets given you know the the uh, the shrinking number of of opportunities in the public market. So that's yeah, one. I don't know how we get over the information the information disconnect to get so that people could actually understand what, and people don't understand what a bond mutual fund is, <clears throat> right? How are you going to get them to understand what's going inside of a private equity fund? Uh, it's a tall yeah. order, right? It's, it's, it's Right, like... because you're talking about 401k, you're talking about the advisor having, signing their name to the fact that it's included in the menu. And things like that. I don't know. I, I totally understand how the CalPERS of the world, the big institute, you know, they've got their due diligence teams, et cetera, et cetera. They can hire the teams to ask the right questions of the private equity funds. Okay, what's inside here? Yeah. Tell them, you know, we're CalPERS. They'll get their answers. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Whether or not, you know, Bob and Jay's machine tool manufacturer gets the right answer. Yeah. For our 401k, uh, you know, contributor uh, beneficiaries. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, the premise is that if you're Fidelity or Vanguard or T. Rowe Price, you're adding PE inside a target date fund, let's say. And so maybe it's, you know, three to 5% of the target date fund that someone will get exposure to. My question then is, I think, is it one, is it worth the risk and what kind of return, you know, what's the... What what kind of risk adjusted performance are we going to get by adding three or five percent PE to someone's target date fund, which already probably has ten mutual funds in it already, right? Uh, probably has a large value and a small cap growth and an international and a right junk bond and a floating rate bond and who else knows, right? I mean, there's just a lot of funds inside a target date fund, so adding uh, you know one more investment option at three to five percent of the asset allocation generates what I don't know 0.01 percent increase in the potential portfolio performance. Yeah, right. And I mean, I think I, I've spent a fair amount of time in Jay's Corner actually looking at target retirement funds just to see, uh, you know, what's underneath the hood, yep. meaning that when people go to a robo-advisor, they go to their, you know, their stockbroker, they are, they're given a portfolio, which may or may not be tailored to them. It may be a generic, you know, diversified portfolio with certain inputs. Yeah. And of course, you know, this year has been, which I knew, I, I, I knew from the time that we spoke last, which was the GameStop period, we, we yeah. spoke immediately after AMC GameStop, we were we actually <laughs> talked about it. Right. And that, that was, for me, something was screwed up in the entire portfolio management, or meaning that the modern portfolio theory, meaning that the different asset classes started to behave very strangely compared yeah. to each other. 
Yeah. And literally at that moment, I said, okay, I need something other than the Maximizer Medicare newsletter. I need this other avenue here to say, look, there are these other topics that I've been talking about under Maximizer Medicare, but people pigeonhole me there, you know, so we need yep. this other thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, the other interesting thing you mentioned, the meme stocks, which we talked about back then, I think Bitcoin was probably trading around 50 or $60,000, maybe give or take. Right. You know, and now no one wants to talk about Bitcoin. No one wants to talk about the possibility as they did back then that it's a inflation hedge. Yeah. Which is proven to be not quite true. And uh, right. you know, a lot of people whose port Bitcoin or whatever crypto portfolios are down, what, two thirds, maybe give or take. Well, then uh, since then, of course, Luna occurred and that that money's you know completely gone. Yeah. So we've had some certain bouts here. It'll be interesting to see. Like I said, that's why I was asking you in terms of when you get pitched, when you get to, people bring you ideas or what trends you, Bob sees, because you're going to see certain things that you're stable of trusted people or people proposing things. If you're seeing, so you're seeing PE, nothing on precious metals because of the yields and alternatives too high, generally yeah. speaking. Nothing on precious metals, Jay, I'm afraid to. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, I think there's a there's you know there there's a there's certainly a growing debate right around you know we talk a growing debate around inflation right and and you know signs looking out a year from now where the right the the um, the, the indicators suggest that you know maybe we've peaked at eight right there's a certain sentiment on the part of folks that are. You know, again, relying on, you know, spreads and, and between different instruments to say, I think sure. we may, you know, the forward looking, you know, view is that maybe we peaked. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. Right. I mean, I, no one has a crystal ball on that one. But imagine if we did peak. What, what does that mean for your investments? I don't know. I, I don't know to pick peak to where. Mm. Again, I, I, I my question is for everyday people. Right? We've still got. Some a basket of goods now costs 108. So we've peaked, but does have does that mean that and now your wages or you get laid off or you don't get laid off or whatever it would be? Yeah. Are you better off really? Because in order for you to get better off, it's not the rate has got to decline. It's right. got to decline so that you can afford more. So how do you do that? 108 can't if it keeps going it goes from 108 to six percent higher the next year are we th that much better off now that basket of goods is going to be what it's going to be what 115 odd yeah you see what i'm saying so now are we really going to be able to get wages to match up with that that part of these types of questions i don't know i i don't think that we've fully flushed out because we're so ingrained on inflation basically being zero. Yeah. I mean, that the product, the improvements in technology made up for whatever price increases, you know, there may have been. Yeah. You know, the, even though chain CPI is, you know, the, the idea behind chain CPI, you know, existed, which is, you know, that the improvements of technology outstripped the nominal price increases. Yeah. But now. Yeah. yeah. It it's just very very difficult to see. Yeah. Uh, last thing, and this is the thing that we've not talked about on your channel because 
you know, we're careful to not be too biased. You see what I'm saying? We're not, we're not introducing, uh, but, but we share. So for the audience, we share emails on different topics and Bob sends me emails on topics and I'm like, Oh boy, I'm not going to touch this one. (laughs) (laughs) Just fishing. (laughs) Yeah. The embers are glowing on this on the, <laughs> on the edge of this iron. So no, I'm not. I'm gonna. We, I get asked Medicare Advantage versus Medigap all the time, and yep. I'm sure you've seen articles written by counterparts of yours, yep. articles by academics, and you know, you know that I relied on and will continue to rely on good sources, Commonwealth Fund and Kaiser Family Foundation as very good, you know by people who are pretty ri- quite rigorous and then mm-hmm. not only that trying their best to keep partisanship out yeah that said not the rest of your colleague <laughs> your no. um, journalism is like this what's your take here bob i mean you're a media person I- i'm just a guy over here i guess <laughs> <laughs> what's your take on what you're being told or how we are being told about Medicare and then the way this stuff is marketed to us. Yeah, I I, I think my my take is that it's a it's um it's as complicated a topic as uh anyone will uh ever have to deal with and then have to deal with over the course of their re- right retirement in a time when maybe they're experiencing cognitive decline right <laughs> so this and so uh it it just i think it speaks to the need for people to um learn as much as possible uh as early as possible about it and um uh, and then find maybe trusted resources jay ultimately to help them guide them through this process because Left to their own devices, they're unlikely to make a change to their plans once they're enrolled, as you well sure. know. And um, and they're unlikely to know about everything that happens. I think one of the stories I sent to you was a New York Times report that was looking at uh, Medicare Advantage plans, um, I guess for lack of a better term, upcoding or adding codes, right, so that they could charge the government more um uh you know for the beneficiaries that are enrolled in their plans and maybe that doesn't hurt the beneficiary uh real time but maybe over the time it does because it's becoming a bit of a inflationary right potentially inflationary um endeavor to add codes or upcode uh patients unbeknownst to them right because they're they're paying maybe zero dollars or a nominal fee per month and they don't know that their their insurer is is uh, is now sending an increased bill to the government for services that uh, they didn't know they were getting um, or being billed for. So that's just one example of like we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And so we need people like you. We need uh, investigative reporters like those at the New York Times to expose things that people need to know about. What I do find interesting, Jay, is that. I'll, I'll just share, you know, I had a, so Medicare Advantage right now is what, 50% of the enrolled beneficiaries? Which, For all intents and purposes, 50%. Yeah. That's right. And and it's grown tremendously, right? It, 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 it's it been remarkable, its growth. And um, I sat down with a college, uh, uh, a former college roommate of mine who just turned 65 and enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And 
and really uh, said he read a number of things and then thought it would it was um, unlikely that he needed Medicare and Medigap because there's no way that he would ever um, uh, experience the cap on his Medicare Advantage plan over the course of his lifetime. And that on a cost benefit analysis, he said it was far better for him to be in a zero dollar MA plan than and then in uh, you know original Medicare and, and Medigap. And he didn't understand why anyone would ever feel differently. And I, you know, I tried to explain to him the reasons why you might choose, you know, original Medicare and Medigap, but it was, I think it was lost on him. You know, it might be lost on him many people because of the appeal of a zero dollar uh, premium. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, I'll stick with this, which is that I think that they both can coexist, right? Which is that. You know, if you're mis- like your your friend, right? If he believes he's Mister Perfect, you know that you're that he's right. And the and I've got persons that were on Medicare Advantage from the beginning because they were in exceptional health and they didn't have financial resources, or and some of them did. In fact, I can remember couples saying, "Look, the reason we're able to retire is because I was very thrifty at every point." Yeah. Right. And the way I'm reading to retire today is because I have resources that resulted in the fact that I looked at matters carefully and chose, you know, thrifty to save. Mm-hmm. And while I understand the, the risks involved, that $3,000 a year of lower premium that I have that I would have to pay is worth it. Yeah. And some of these and oh yeah by the way i knew that 10 years ago so now i've kept all this money of thirty thousand dollars during this and it's more than thirty thousand because medigap would be more expensive now yeah and now then in fact and this is unfortunately part of the way that we get told given information where we're given our little sliver of information yes in that year that you went to the hospital yes the nickels and dimes of Medicare Advantage can add up to be greater than your Medigap premium. I don't think there's any doubt of that, even if, uh, and maybe subject you to the out-of-pocket maximum. But that's not the only year. These articles, and maybe you and I can do a better job of that, uh, um, is to point out, you know, we're thinking about multiple years. Yeah. It's not only the the singular year. And... and that's for Mr. Perfect, the person who's always going to hit the out-of-pocket maximum every single year. Well, that's different, right? I mean, that's an answer. Now the now the higher premium for Medigap is, you know, very, you know, will pay for itself, if you right. will, you know, be, yeah. because of its stability. Is it your opinion that our our sound clips have to be more about advice and guy, or you know, we're we're pretty careful between yeah. us, you know, to, to be as neutral as I, possible. Yeah. What kind I, of feedback I, do you get? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I'd liken it to um, a piece I once wrote about annuities, um, you know, and I clearly wrote about the pros and cons and who they were for and who they shouldn't be and who might not consider them, et cetera. And I felt that was a really balanced educational piece. And, uh, and in the comments section underneath, someone wrote, what are you, a shill for the insurance industry? And I thought, did you even read the article? I mean, yeah. I didn't give advice. I was just explaining what this was and 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 who might use it and who might not and uh, and, and pros and cons, et cetera. And I thought that, you know, that's my role is is, is education, right? I, I've always thought that, you know, that with anything, it's not, 
it's like there is no silver bullet there is no one answer right the, the, people have different points of view about what tool or technique to use or what product to use um the best we can hope for is to arm people with enough information that they can if not make a decision on their own with what we've written or said that they have the working knowledge to talk to a professional about this right and that's always been my motto i think jay i've always said like part of my hope is that what i do is takes people from uh, street level uh, to curbside to advisor's doorstep, right? That they've that I've armed them with enough information so that, so that their eyes don't glaze over when uh, someone mentions maximum out-of-pocket cost on your Medicare Advantage plan there. You know, that should not be a surprise to them if they were to walk into an office like yours and someone says that. So that, I think that's, I, I think it's hard for me to think that I should be telling people what to do as opposed to telling them, uh, here's what they need to know. And, and let me, and we can close there, Bob. Thank goodness I'm a sigh of relief because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a willing participant of or a citizen of Hot Take Nation. You know, <laughs> that's just not. Yeah, maybe, maybe we were talking poker. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe something then. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in a different lifetime, I'll get reborn in, in you know, in that way and things like that. All right, Bob. Thank you so much for joining. Always great to talk to you. You know, we we have a great time on our monthly. I, uh, but yeah, the reality I, is, you know, this gets to see a different. Other people get to see a different size of the the legend, Bob Powell. <laughs> I so enjoy this, Jay. Thank you so much. Oh, Appreciate okay. it. Thanks.